0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. Today, I'm joined by Guillaume Long, former foreign minister of Ecuador under Rafael Correa, to discuss his experience as a socialist in government, the political turmoil in Ecuador today and the future of socialism in Latin America. As you know, our funding for the first few episodes comes from the Lipman Miliband Trust. They're a brilliant organisation and you can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. But we need to build up our subscriber base if we're going to make this work long term. So if you are just as excited to listen to this podcast as we are to bring it to you, you can sign up as a patron on patreon.com slash to win pod. You'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes action and the chance to influence the future direction of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and to give us a rating if you're a fan. Also make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for updates and that's all with the handle at a world to win pod. Now without further ado I give you the rundown with Guillaume Long where we talk about the coronavirus in Ecuador and protests against IMF imposed cuts. So in this section, we're going to discuss a few stories that have caught our eye this week and which we want to discuss in a little more depth. So first, we have this story from the BBC. Ecuador's port city of Guayaquil is one of the worst hit places in the whole of Latin America in the coronavirus pandemic. So Guillaume, can you explain why that is and indeed why Ecuador has been hit so hard by the pandemic as well?
1: So I think it's a number of factors that combined together created this lethal cocktail in Ecuador and particularly in Guayaquil. So, you know, we know that some migrants came back from some Ecuador and migrated to Spain, came back to visit Ecuador. And we've kind of, we now know where they were and how, you know, infection started. And then they were, the government was very slow in, in reacting. They first banned and then authorized these football games with 17,000 people attending. And that seems to be like one of the, the moments where the, the virus really spread out. But, of course, there are more long-term reasons why the Ecuadorian state was unable to deal with the uh, coronavirus crisis Uh, let's not forget that the Moreno administration has undergone huge cuts to the health sector in the last three years. You know, it's halved public investment in the health sector, and it's laid off over 10% of health workers in the public sector. You know, we're talking about a huge austerity plan carried out over the last two, three years, accompanied by the IMF with its conditionalities. And also, I would say, ideologically, a government that believes that the market's going to resolve everything. And so when the crisis emerged, uh, particularly in Guayaquil, uh, it was a health crisis, but it fast became a mortuary crisis, which was why these images uh, we've been seeing in the media uh, all around the world have been so shocking, you know, bodies abandoned in the streets because funeral parlours weren't able to deal with the uh, high volume of corpses they had to deal with, and some actually got scared uh, and decided to close down, the, to shut down during the pandemic. And the state, with this, you know, the government with this kind of laissez-faire, pro-market ideology of not getting involved and not intervening, literally did not intervene in the funeral parlors when it was, you know, right, a national security issue, and let it all fester and. Uh, Uh, Eventually, um, you know, it got out of hand. The health system collapsed. The mortuary crisis uh, grew. And then, only uh, much later, I'm talking weeks later, was there a special task force named by the president to deal with the bodies piling up on the streets of Guayaquil and to have this uh, this, uh, burial ground that they managed to get together the last minute and having to bury hundreds and hundreds of bodies. And of course, as in other contexts, lack of testing lack of transparent information the government actually called This fake news when people, when journalists, in fact, including international journalists, were denouncing this as a huge crisis. It was saying this is fake news, uh, sort of being spread by Rafael Correa and his supporters. You know, kind of a mixture of denial, uh, slow reaction, incompetence, and this very deeply ingrained neoliberal ideology of not intervening. Obviously, when you have a pandemic and you don't intervene, then the results are pretty much disastrous. And In conclusion, uh, we still don't exactly have a certain death toll. We don't have exact figures of how many people have died. A good proxy is, you know, comparing the death toll average for previous years for the period of the pandemic. And if we do that exercise, then we're, you know, 25, even 30,000 deaths in excess of what you would normally have over these months in Ecuador for a country with 17 million inhabitants, the per capita death toll is huge. Uh, mm. This is a, a huge crisis. Uh, and, you know, us Ecuadorians, we all know number of people that have died around us. Uh, it's been a national tragedy, and unfortunately, it's not over. The problem in Guayaquil seems to be less important now, but now it's moved on to Quito, the capital, which seems to be hit by the pandemic uh, in the last few um, days and weeks.
0: It is fascinating, you because um, a lot of the stuff that you've just been saying there about Ecuador could be applied to somewhere like the United Kingdom or the United States, where, again, you've seen that attitude of leave it be, you know, long term cuts to healthcare provision, to public health, and then the uh, kind of default reaction to any event amongst these governments, which is kind of just don't do anything and leave it up to the markets. But in Ecuador, this is the next story that we have, we've seen people kind of, I suppose, push back against this a little bit and some public pressure mounting on the government as a result of its response to this. So can you tell us a bit more about what these protests are motivated by? Is it people responding to the imposition of lockdown? Is it people responding to the government's failure to provide kind of, you know, um, support for people who are losing their jobs? Uh, What is the kind of political basis of, of, uh, of these protests?
1: So it's important to understand that the Moreno government is undergoing a very aggressive neoliberal structural adjustment program accompanied by the IMF and rolling back on all the um, social advances that had been achieved during the 10 years of the presidency of Rafael Correa. Now, this has been increasingly unpopular in Ecuador, right? There was a honeymoon as you would expect, the first year was okay-ish for Moreno in political terms, but we now have a government that is probably the most unpopular government since the return of democracy in 1979 after the military dictatorship, right? So we're talking about you know, a very unpopular government latest polls established between 7 and 8% credibility and you know the, the, the most favorable numbers established 15 to 18 percent approval ratings, and that's probably just been really generous with the government. Last October, Ecuador had the largest protests in its contemporary history, certainly in my generation, my lifetime. For and not just for one day, but for several weeks, dozens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets to protest these IMF-supported reforms: the lifting of subsidies, flexibilization on the flow of capital, cuts in the labor rights and wages of civil servants and public workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The protests were met by brutal force. 11 people died. This is in the context, Ecuador, unlike some of its neighbors, that's not used to this kind of violence, not used to political violence. There isn't a real culture of political violence. So 11 people dying on the streets in protests is a, is really a big deal in Ecuador. You know, 1,300, 1,400 people wounded with a significant amount of very serious injuries, including dozens of people losing their eyes, because it's, it appears to be that one of the techniques adopted, I don't know if you know, officially or, or what, but one of the techniques adopted by the riot police was to fire tear gas at people's faces. So, you know, a lot of people lost an eye uh, and, you know, 1,500 people detained, including people detained in, in sort of illegal facilities, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, the pandemic has meant that the political mobilization of the people out on the streets. You know, there's been a, you know, people are back in the private space. The public space is more difficult to occupy. So, you know, if the pandemic has made an economic Situation worse, and it's been terrible from from that point of view. Politically, for the government, it's been interesting because it's enabled it to to suddenly regain control over over the situation and make sure that there are no more large scale protests. So what we've seen since the pandemic are small scale protests and essentially a, a political battle in Ecuador, which is about making sure that the upcoming February election, presidential and parliamentary February elections next year are free and fair, and that the largest opposition force, the largest political force in Ecuador, which is the political force of uh, Rafael Correa and his followers, progressives, leftists, uh, can participate in the election, because what the government's trying to do now is to ban it, to block it, to bar Correa and his supporters from, and his party, actually, uh, from running in the election. So this is where we're at in terms of the political struggle right now in Ecuador, But yeah, I mean, there's not much going on in the streets because obviously the pandemic doesn't allow for that. And people are really traumatized in Ecuador because of what happened, because of the scale of the pandemic and the death toll. And so you have very little um, uh, public expression of anger. It's all online, on the social media, a lot of activity to seek international support and uh, solidarity in the face of the authoritarian slide of the Moreno administration essentially trying to ban the opposition from running in the upcoming elections. And they you know, have unleashed this huge wave of what we call today in Latin America lawfare, so legal warfare, if you like, to try and stop Correa and his supporters from being able to participate in, in free and fair elections. And this is, you know, a regional phenomenon. We saw it with Lula when he was about to win the elections in Brazil. They, you know, he he was locked up, so he couldn't participate, literally. And we're seeing it now today with Correa, who is physically outside of Ecuador, can't go to Ecuador because he would be arrested, despite the fact that Interpol is actually saying we're not gonna hand Correa over because these are politically motivated charges. So, you know, Correa's safe abroad, but obviously. Being physically and politically present in Ecuador is impossible for him. And that, you know, makes it more difficult to run in these circumstances.
0: That idea that you just mentioned of of lawfare, of the idea that particularly these most right wing neoliberal administrations lack so much legitimacy that they have to invent ways in order to repress, you know, progressive, sometimes socialist movements is, you know, very interesting neoliberalism, particularly since the financial crisis, and especially now is requiring so much more active force than perhaps earlier neoliberal leaders who were able to kind of do the privatization, undermine state capacity, et cetera, perfectly legitimately. Do you think that this is a trend that we're going to be seeing increasingly around the world and particularly in Latin America, especially in the context of the pandemic?
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right and an excellent point. What we're seeing right now in Latin America, and it's a regional phenomenon, is what a lot of scholars are now calling neoliberal authoritarianism. Right? Now it is true that in the nineteen eighties and nineties in Latin America, the first neoliberal experiments, barring the Pinochet experiment probably in the seventies and maybe even the Argentine juntas started flirting with neoliberal ideas. But generally speaking, neoliberalism in Latin America in the eighties and nineties, it was accompanied by democratization, right? Because sixties and seventies in Latin America during the Cold War were the years of the big military dictatorships in most countries in Latin America, there are a few exceptions. But the eighties and nineties, a global third Wave of democratization, as some scholars have called it, was a much more pleasant form of neoliberalism, if you like. Aesthetically, it looked better. It was elected governments, the return of civilian rule, and they implemented, after the 1983 debt crisis in Latin America in particular, a number of neoliberal reforms. Now, these neoliberal reforms were disastrous for Latin America, both economically. The 80s and 90s are the years of negative. Economic GDP growth, if you look at it comparatively uh, since the second world war, and socially of course, they meant the rise of uh, well, poverty didn't was not significantly reduced you 'd have to look at poverty over the twenty years you know there are peaks and then it comes back down again and comes back up, so poverty was very volatile, but inequality was systematically on the rise, and this in the context of Latin America being the most unequal continent in the world to this date, which is the source of much of its structural problems. Inequality in Latin America is a big problem, and particularly inequality in the context of the most urbanized region in the world, with something people don't always know. Latin America is very urban, 65% urban population, and inequality and high uh, urban density make a terrible cocktail, right, And, and with deep social repercussions. So that in part explains why... In the first decade and a half of the 21st century, you had what in the English language was often called the pink tide. We don't call it that in Spanish, but a wave, an unprecedented wave of left of center Latin American governments, very heterogeneous, some more radical, some more center left, but largely post neoliberal who brought the state back in and actually were very successful economically with much higher GDP growth and above all, all of these governments reducing poverty aggressively and reducing inequality. Now, since the commodities decline of 2014, 2015, some of these leftist governments, also political fatigue, some of these governments have been in power for a long time, were either voted out of power, as in the case of Argentina, and then voted back in because the neoliberal experiment was such a failure, or in other cases, you know, coups, you know, impeachments, uh, irregular impeachments, all sorts of irregular transitions back to the kind of right-wing elite uh, governments. Uh, But this has been very unsuccessful and very unpopular, which is why we were discussing these protests in Ecuador, but also huge protests in Chile that went on for months, protests in Haiti, protests in Brazil, protests in Colombia, unprecedented protests in Colombia, which is a, a country not used to those kinds of protests. And Right-wing governments really with bad polling figures for upcoming elections and a very a negative approval uh, figures, etc., etc. So people realizing or you know or remembering or having this kind of historic memory that uh, the progressive decade and a half, uh, the post-neoliberal governments in the first decade and a half of the twenty-first century were much better for them that there was uh, an unprecedented 90 to 100 million people lifted out of poverty in Latin America out of 600 million inhabitants, 100 million people were lifted out of poverty between the year roughly 2000 and 2012. And that in the last four or five years, uh, we've seen 20 million people going back into poverty in Latin America. That obviously has a repercussion. So as you said, you know, the strategy of the right is to make sure that the left doesn't come back in. And it, it's not doing this through these old military alliances of the 1960s and 70s, bringing back military coups. I mean, there have, sometimes the military participates. We saw that there was some military participation in the Bolivian coup last year. But the military is not at the forefront. It's certainly not becoming government anymore. And the strategy is lawfare. It's through controlling the justice systems and through pressuring the judges and through intimidating them or bribing them or whatever the way forward is. And so you've seen these huge Kind of legal conspiracies, judicial conspiracies in Brazil, uh, in the Lavajato, the Car Wash scandal against Lula. We've seen them in Argentina. We're seeing them now in Ecuador. We're seeing them in Colombia. You're seeing it in Bolivia, very similar, where they're trying to bar both the candidates and the parties from running. This is the new anti-left political persecution. It's through creating these. Uh, forms of judicial persecutions Uh, it's a new phenomenon it there's a geopolitical scope it's got it's a regional scale it has international implications and alliances and i would argue that it has the strong support of the united states so it's a real Mm. a real hemispheric project here against the left in latin america
0: So I want to come back onto a lot of what we've just been discussing. But first, I want to talk a little bit in this section about your life and work. So your experiences as Foreign Minister of Ecuador, your experiences in Ecuadorian politics, and some of the lessons that you can perhaps teach socialists in movements in the global north as a result of that experience so can you just start by telling us a little bit about how you came to your political views and the trajectory of your career because it was quite unusual you were born in France then you studied in England and then you traveled to, uh, to Latin America before becoming I think the first non-Ecuadorian foreign minister of Ecuador.
1: Okay, so I am Ecuadorian. Otherwise, I couldn't have been minister. But you're quite right. Yeah, I am a naturalized Ecuadorian, so I wasn't born Ecuadorian. I became Ecuadorian. Um, yeah, so it's a, I mean, yeah, it's an unusual story. Maybe French mother, uh, British father. So in that sense, no Ecuadorian blood, so to speak. Um, but I went. I went to Latin America before I studied. Actually, as as very young, I was 18. I traveled extensively in Central America. I was very politically motivated, very interested in in, in Central American conflicts of the 1980s. Uh, This was the early 90s when I arrived in Latin America, so I I wasn't in Central America during the height of the wars, but there was still a very important legacy there, and I was very interested in it, and I spent... Just under a year studying it there, and then eventually, all sorts of circumstances I won't go into, but I ended up in Ecuador and ended up staying in Ecuador for the better part of my life. I went back to the UK to study, came back to Ecuador just after uh, Rafael Correa was elected, and I was teaching in university, finishing my PhD. And um, you know, the, in the government of Rafael Correa, you had a lot of now, to call them leftist academics, I suppose, is the best way. A lot of economists, Rafael Correa being himself an economist with a PhD from, from Illinois. Yeah, I think the different governments of the pink tide, the different left-wing governments in Latin America at the time had, were actually quite dissimilar from each other in all sorts of different ways. So in the case of Lula, it was a former trade unionists, in the case of Evo, also kind of that union, but more Rural and cocalero background. In the case of Chavez, it was a military rebel. In the case of it was all very different. In the case of Correa, he was an academic with a strong popular, himself a man from humble background, and it became what his uh, enemies termed uh, a populist government. That was the label the, that, uh, in fact, even the Western press adopted to describe Correa. So it wasn't a technocratic government, but it was a government with a lot of academics in it, development experts or, the, or experts in public policy. A lot of his, you know, his cabinet was full of academics. And so soon I was uh, the advisor to the minister of planning in the days back in the days where the ministry of planning which was created by Correa was really at the forefront of the radical reforms that we wanted to undertake in, in Ecuador and drafting a lot of the of the the new laws after the new constitution was passed in a referendum and from there and it was a great score from me for me from the ministry of planning uh, you know that was kind of Involved in approving all the public investment and thinking long term, the transition away from commodities and raw materials and oil. And we were kind of responsible of thinking the Ecuador the next 20, 30 years and beyond and, and thinking of economic diversification and all sorts of things. It was a really good, a really good institution to start not thinking just in in academic terms as a historian and political scientist that I was, but uh, in terms of how the state really works, how institutions really work, how public finances, or even public law works. And eventually, I was involved in reform of higher education. And Correa me uh, as his representative in, in, in a body that regulates universities, I was elected president of that body by the members of that body, and then became a minister in the field of what we call human talent. So education, higher education, so on and so forth, and ended up yeah, quite an amazing story. It really ended up as yeah. foreign because my PhD is in international relations, so my real expertise was foreign affairs, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's not something that I'd planned. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to write papers, but uh, when you know, when faced with the possibility of helping, I, you know, I had to decide whether I was going to observe the process or participate in a process, and I chose the latter.
0: It's fascinating, actually, what you say about the differences between all those, uh, you know, what we call pink tide governments in Latin America, because, of course, those tensions between academia, trade unionists, kind of movementists, politicians, etc, exist on, you know, on the left all over the world. And I'm wondering what you think the impact of having so many academics and intellectuals in the Korea government was on its trajectory and on its achievements.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think there were some positive and negative impacts. And I don't think it was just academics and intellectuals. And Correa was a political animal, very savvy. So they were key alliances with people who were not academics. And, you know, they were, you know, he won 14 elections, was elected in the first round twice with a 30-point lead on the next most voted candidate. So that, you know, he couldn't have done that just being in an academic or in an intellectual bubble. However, it is true that in his style of governance, Correa had, you know, he always used to say, "We're in a hurry here. We we need to do things fast. There's so many things to change. Uh, We need to get the best people who have the most uh, the best knowledge to 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 reform the system and understand. You know, you use a structuralist, so it's about the system and the structures and institutions, and and that was great because I think it gave Ecuador an edge on other left-wing processes i think uh we were probably in some regards more efficient every dollar was measured and the impact of every dollar was measured that's the typical economist thing to do right really Mm -hmm. thinking of uh the cost of opportunity and all these things and and decision making was a big deal and you know all these things were great i think you know we really maximized favorable economic circumstances, and public policy was precise. We did not behave as a typical oil rentier state. And that was good. And a number of positive things from that. Now, the negative things maybe was that it was too top down. I mean, obviously, uh, there was a broad, a large political party, which had two thirds of the seats in in, in the National Assembly. And there was a lot of it was a very vibrant. We had first we had a constituent process, so that was very vibrant with a new constitution and people participating, and there were also dynamics of political participation so you know we did all sorts of things as a minister you know on a weekly basis i would be in assemblies and listening to people and we had a methodology because everything had to be you know there was methodology this was not just voluntarism right there was a there was a methodology to 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 bring into uh, the decision making processes the, the the will expressed in, in these assemblies in these popular assemblies but still it is true that Korea's best cadres, the best people were in the executive branch you know there was less importance on a daily basis given to the movement the political party if you if you want and that you know in the long run that also had a cost because if we'd given more importance to the collective dynamic of change and radical transformation and even cultural change through the party and the party being the vanguard of the process which clearly it was not in our case the government was the vanguard of the process to use you know antiquated terms but maybe this illustrates my point you know, things would have been different i mean right now uh, you know we would have had a much more organized political opposition. Uh, It would have been less easy to deconstruct from the point of view of the attacks that we've been submitted to. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you look at Venezuela, which has, you know, been in the throes of huge economic crisis, economic meltdown. And yet, remarkably, the government has survived. Why has it survived? Because of its emphasis stress on the political organization, on grassroots organization, on organization in, in barrios. So, you know, shanty towns, urban peripheral areas, so on and so forth. We did not have that same logic, or at least not to the same extent. And therefore, there was more of a, we have to do this now quickly because we're not going to be in power forever and ever. And, you know, some of the participatory dynamics take a long time and we can't wait. And, we need, and you know, I, I'm sympathetic with some of that as well because I think we really transformed structures in a way that was comparatively interesting, even if you look at other leftist governments in the region, I think we were one of the governments that really fought hard not to reprimarize the economy in a context of high commodities prices, and that's very difficult to do. Uh, And we really thought in terms of long-term policies, investment in education, investment in economic diversification, um, major tax reforms so as not to be uh, so dependent on the boom and bust effects of just high oil prices, you know, all these things were clever, were good, and they were thought through, but it was uh, probably too much of a managerial cabinet of experts. And we should have had, uh, yeah, more bottom up dynamics in terms of the decision making process.
0: That's really um, interesting that you responded to that question in that way, because I was going to come on later to ask about whether or not um, this is something that I've heard, from for example, from others who were in and around the Korea administration, is that perhaps some of the reversals that we've seen since the end of that administration had to do with the fact that, as you say, insufficient attention was paid to kind of building up the party. You know, you mentioned the idea of a vanguard. Ironically, the, the approach was kind of insufficiently Leninist, you might argue. So that is, uh, I think, an, an interesting and legitimate point to be made and something that Especially for those of us involved in, in party politics in the global north, is a very important lesson to take home.
1: I think yes, more stress on the party and the movement would have meant we would be in a different situation now. But I think that I don't think that's the most important factor in the crumbling of our party. I mean, first, I think choosing Moreno as a successor and all the lawfare around taking the party away from us would have been would have happened even if the party was. You know, much stronger. But I think there's a much more important point to be made here about the fact that the left in Latin America, and this is valid for us in Ecuador, it's valid for the PT in Brazil, it's valid for a number of leftist political parties and movements throughout the region, was there was a decision that was made that we weren't going to be the left of the 3%, 4 5% historically that we got at the polls, right? Uh, you know, I come from that sort of ide- ideologically pure, I don't know what, what term you might want to use, but that kind of left that was truly leftist and, you know, quite uncompromising in its ideology. And when Correa became a candidate, he said, right, we actually want to win this. You know, and this is not about losing with five percent. But you know, we are martyrs of the cause, and we did a really good campaign, and we said the right things. We have to create a broad alliance, and we are going to have uh, yes, a leftist project, but also a re-foundational project where it's going to be about the rebirth of the Ecuadorian nation-state. And if we need to have a much broader alliance, including some, you know, some se- certain sectors of the uh, Ecuadorian bourgeoisie joining in, and you know, being much less sectarian. And in terms of our ideological politics, and so be it. And that was the key to success of the Latin American left. As long as the leadership was leftist and as long as there was a strong leftist component, discourse, culture, and movement, then, you know, you could still steer the movement away pretty much in a leftist uh, way, even if you had other actors that weren't necessarily left-wing actors inside your governing coalition. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's less ideologically driven, you know, it's not become, a, you know, you're not having a cadre party running the show, you're having a mass party. PT or Aliança in Brazil or Alianza País in Ecuador. And so ideologically it's less well defined. You also run the risk of greater clientelism, you know, people joining the party because it's a huge mass organization or getting close to government because you're essentially in government. And they think, "Oh, I know, I'll get closer to these guys because they they're in power." And so you have false allies, false friendships, yeah, you know, false members of your party. And I think that was even more important at the end of the day, the party crumbled because it was a very broad church, and so it was great when you were in power because it enabled you to have a two-thirds majority in Parliament. But as soon as you uh, were in opposition, the hardcore support of that was much more narrow, much smaller. Maybe it's inevitable. Maybe you know you, you see people's true colors when you're not in power anymore, and it's a normal a normal process. But I think that was much more hurtful in a way than the other things we discussed.
0: Yeah, it's very easy, I suppose, to look back on what's happened since Korea and and think about the difficulties and the strategic errors. I think that's happening for a lot of, of leftists and progressives at the moment. But it is also important to remember some of the incredible achievements that the Korea administration undertook during the time that it was in power and you know think about the impact that that will have in terms of future demands in terms of building the confidence of a political movement so I want you to talk about you know the things that you think were the the biggest most substantial most long-lasting achievements of the administration.
1: I would say there are two broad categories and you know as someone who comes from a more yeah leftist background you know my my initial Stress would always be kind of materialist, a materialist uh, approach, you know, so a reduction of poverty, a reduction of inequality you know, seeing Ecuadorian people having basic labor rights and and social security and going to, you know, seeing the first generation of of Ecuadorians going to universities from popular backgrounds and the inclusion of also you know, uh, Afro-Ecuadorians so black Ecuadorians and indigenous people in a nation-state project, and which has to do with making the lower classes more empowered for them to have more rights and for there to be more economic and social equality. That was, I think, is you know obviously one of the biggest achievements right that's what we were striving for all these years but in power i discovered you know other elements that maybe i would have given less importance to when i was a strict academic you know it's really interesting to see things that are much less tangible like optimism and hope mm, and, you know pride. Yeah. you know ecuadorians before korea you know, were kind of always looked down upon by their neighbors. They had two larger neighbors, the Colombians and the Peruvians, particularly the Colombians, mm. uh, sort of a stronger nation state, a bigger economy, more well-known internationally. You know, when you were in an Ecuador and abroad, Ecuadorian migrants were always, you know, you always looked, there was a lack of national self-esteem. And Korea changed that, and it changed that dramatically really incredible you know he put Ecuador on the map people who'd never heard of Ecuador or you know people in Europe or even in Britain would typically Ecuador you know oh is that in Africa you know and it would greatly offend Ecuadorian people and suddenly Correa put Ecuador on the map Ecuador became well known not just because Correa was kind of a well-known and brilliant leader, but because it, had, it was very active, very proactive in the international sphere, in the multilateral sphere. I remember being a chairman of the G77, leading the fight against tax havens. You know, we actually had – a referendum barring people from having assets in tax havens, right? And public officials from having money in tax havens can't run for public office in Ecuador, can't run in elections, right? These were all very, I mean, I'm just giving you ad hoc examples a bit, but these were all very novel and refreshing and ideas. And I think that had a massive impact on Ecuadorian uh, self-esteem. Uh, and what we've seen right now under Moreno is the exact reverse process, and which is, part of the reason why is so unpopular. So, yeah, in summary, it's not just, you know, purchasing power, right, that makes you happy or not. Uh, there are all sorts of proud or not or optimistic about your, your, your children's future or not or, you know, also there are all sorts of other things that were important and uh, part of, of that legacy.
0: It's good that you brought us on to um, the kind of international arena, because obviously you mentioned that you studied international relations. You would have been familiar with the theory about relations between the imperial periphery and the imperial core and the dominance of Washington consensus institutions, which has obviously come back with a real vengeance now as the IMF wades in once again into Latin American politics and economics. I just wondered, you know, what was it like as a kind of representative of a a Global South institution attempting to push back against many of those kind of Washington consensus norms, if that's not a too outdated phrase? And what did you learn about how power works and is exercised at the international level?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, when you see it in practice, uh, you understand, you know, how countries... Uh, intimidated um, from, you know, and prefer to sort of toe what is often called the pragmatic line. I mean, I would call it the short-term goals as opposed to long-term goals, pragmatic in the short term. You know, In the long term, it just condemns you to more surrogacy and dependence and underdevelopment and so on. But, you know, you can see how governments are intimidated in, in, in just toeing the line and not doing the right things. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, the global north and the powerful countries and their institutions can can retaliate. You know, when I denounce terminated 16 bilateral investment treaties, right, because Ecuador made it unconstitutional, you know, to have uh, these investment state dispute settlements mechanisms in international arbitration courts between investors and the ecuadorian state you know the, the age old story that you always lose out it's always the investor that, that wins and you know if you, if you if you raise the minimum wage in ecuador then and there was that
0: the, chevron case
1: that's right so for example the chevron case but generally speaking you know if you introduce environmental regulations or if you raise the minimum wage you know, that says you're in breach of the contract, therefore they take you to court and then you always lose. You know, these kind of really unfair systemic mechanisms of the supremacy of capital over human beings when what we were saying is we wanted the supremacy of human beings on capital. We weren't even... Negating the market or its importance, you know, Correa always used to say, you know, the market is a great servant, but it's a terrible master, right? So, you know, we needed to use the market and markets can be more efficient in some ways, but much less efficient in others, right? And so that's what we were about. And yet, uh, even if our critics on the left... You know because we did have an opposition on the left just called us modernizers of capitalism <laughs> if you like, even just being modernizers of capitalism and I think we were something more than that but even just that was punished internationally. we always wanted a good relationship with the United States for example we I, you know I spoke to John Kerry and he was a charming man an intelligent man we used to you know we used to get on but at the end of the day it was just very difficult because the culture of empire in the United States and this notion that they have of remnant of the Monroe Doctrine and treating the, United, uh, the hemisphere as it's, its backyard and it's deep into the security apparatus and the national security doctrine of the United States that you need a docile not a democratic not a prosperous a, a docile Western Hemisphere in order for American power to be able to be projected unhindered across the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans and that notion permeates U.S. institutions so much and in its culture of empire so much that at the end of the day, even if you're reasonable, and you explain, you know, I'm not anti-American. There are lots of things that we really think are really quite impressive that you've achieved. We'd love to have some universities uh, get involved in this research project that we have in the Amazon to uh, move on from oil and kind of maximize the biogenetic potential of, of, our, of our great biodiversity in the Amazon and work on pharmaceuticals here and do biotech there and do all these great things and you could help us doing that. And you know, doesn't have the chi- to be the Chinese. It could be you, or then, then again, it could be the Chinese, whatever. You know, but we were unable to do that because there was culture of domination, and they wouldn't accept those kinds of, of, of arguments. So, so yeah, I mean, I've maybe it's just too general an answer to your question, but there are all sorts of ways in which it's very difficult to break the mold, and the 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 only way to do it. That I'm, cons- I'm absolutely convinced of is to break the divide and rule dynamics of empire, uh, the age-old uh, divide and rule dynamics of empire, and you could be, so which is why we insisted so much on South American integration, on creating our own institutions, on creating Unasur and such and such things that, that that meant that at least when we would be negotiating with the United States or with China, we would on certain issues, not on all issues, but on certain issues we could negotiate as a block of countries, including Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Chile, etc., etc., and be much less vulnerable. Which is why it's fascinating to see that right now in power in Latin America, the thing it's most being aggressive against are the international institutions, the regional institutions that we built to go back to the age-old uh, race-to-the-bottom bilateralism with the United States, right? I will pay my workers less, I will have less taxes, and so on and so forth, race-to-the-bottom bilateralism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to quickly just point out to listeners that uh, what we were just talking about those kind of investor state dispute settlements ISDSs are, you know, a really problematic uh, element of the international architecture at the moment. They effectively allow corporations to sue governments if those governments introduce uh, measures that harm their profits. So that Chevron case in Ecuador for example, Chevron Sued the Ecuadorian government for imposing kind of basic um, constraints on its activity and getting it to clean up after itself. And I'll put some links in the description of this to understand the elements of what they are and how we can kind of push back against those in our respective countries. So in light of the now you know very well known quote for for many of us on the left pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will I want to move on to the last section of the podcast in which we're going to talk about some uh, movements or campaigns, uh, very briefly, that you have either been involved in or are aware of and would like to bring to listeners attention so that we all listening to this podcast, we as a socialist movement around the world, can figure out how we can support one another, how we can particularly support movements uh, in the global south, in Ecuador, fighting during this incredibly, challenging time for so many people, so many workers around the world for for justice. So can you talk to me a little bit about some, some campaigns or some movements that socialists in the global north should be aware of and that they can support?
1: Yeah, so generally speaking, I think making people aware of what's going on in Latin America is really important. We are going through extremely harsh times with extremely authoritarian governments in power. Uh, they try and uh, wear a democratic mask, but so far They've had an impunity that has essentially been uh, afforded to them because of the complicit silence of the international community. Obviously, the Trump administration has been a major uh, obstacle for progressives to be able to denounce what's going on in Latin America, but also, you know, European countries and European countries, uh, including the members of the EU, but also historically the United Kingdom and others, have essentially gone back to accepting the Monroe Doctrine, right? So what can we do? I mean, there are a number of international collectives that have been, I mean, the Progressive International has just been very good on Ecuador right now, uh, getting people to sign. John McDonald signed a really good uh, letter denouncing this anti-democratic slide in Ecuador and the fact that the Ecuadorian government was seeking to ban the opposition from running in the upcoming elections. NGOs are sometimes... Uh, you know, very biased in their outlook. They're focused on certain issues and they crack down on certain governments, but they really don't crack down on others. So, you know, putting pressure on NGOs, despite the fact that my you know that I'm Ecuadorian, I work a lot on Bolivia right now because it was amazing. You know, after the October twentieth elections last year, you know, the media essentially reported that the elections which saw Evo Morales being reelected were fraudulent. Mm. This was the pillar on which the coup was then organized. I mean, Evo Morales was essentially toppled because of this alleged uh, fraud, because of these accusations of of fraud. So we've done a lot of work on trying to get op-eds in and trying to convince the media to have a look at this again. And fortunately, you know, it's taken months, but now the New York Times has come to terms with the fact that there is no evidence for fraud. The Washington Post has come to terms with the fact that there's no evidence for fraud. And when you, you get the ball rolling like that, you get the first domino to fall, you know, CNN starts saying it. And then if CNN says it, NBC and et etc. et cetera, et cetera. Fighting to try and, and conquer terrain in the mainstream is something that I consider to be important for the left and not to be pushed to the margins, you know, to try and fight back. Uh, And that's something that we do here in Washington. Washington is a great place to do that in because, obviously, a lot of battles are being fought here. So, I I mean, maybe this is a disappointing answer. I don't know whether you should enroll with this campaign or that campaign or, you know, there are so many ways of doing politics, so many ways of fighting battles. Some people write, some people protest, some people lobby, some people teach. But, yeah, I mean… Getting organized certainly is the way forward. Joining people in the struggle and being informed and informing others, um, I think, is the way forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was not a disappointing answer at all, because it gives our listeners something they can do immediately, which is check out the links that we'll put in the description to this episode, host on social media. We'll find this uh, this work the Progressive International has done and uh, post as to what you can do there to bring what is going on in Ecuador, and indeed what is going on in Bolivia and and throughout Latin America at the moment, to the attention of media in uh, in the global north. So, not a disappointing answer at all. But um, Guillaume, we will let you go now. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was absolutely fantastic to talk to you.
1: Thanks, Grace. I really enjoyed it.